My dear friends in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You never know from whence inspiration might spring, and in my case, it sprang before me this last Wednesday morning in my garage at about 7 a.m. as I was getting ready to head into town here. You might recall that Wednesday um, was a little bit on the chilly side, particularly in the morning. I was just hovering right around zero degrees, and I didn't really think about it too much until I stepped into my garage and I heard the electric space heater kick on. Now, this is the first home that we've ever occupied that has had a heated garage. We're fancy like that, yeah. <laughs> the truth is, I'll tell you what, I'm pretty tight when it comes to spending money on electricity. One of the first signs you've become your parents, <laughs> you know what I mean? All I do is go around the house flipping lights off all the time. Uh, so I keep that, that garage heater set on its like lowest, lowest possible setting so it only kicks on when it's really getting bone-cracking cold, right? Well, hearing that heater kick on, it, it drew my eyes up to where it is mounted on the, near the ceiling on the back wall of my garage and it led me to wonder why I thought it was a good idea to stack all those Rubbermaid totes on the top of the shelf right underneath it with the lids sticking out of the totes right in front of the fins of my electric heater, right? Which then led my eyes to the rest of the shelving units all along that back wall and the incredible mess that is my garage, the detritus, of three decades and four children <laughs> and everything else that goes with it, filled to overflowing with my apparent lack of ability to prioritize and downsize. The scientific term for it, I believe, is called clutter. Now, any guy worth his salt is able to give you a good argument why you need to hang on to those two extra sets of golf clubs, right? and why you need three rather than two extra-large, big, blue plastic tarps folded up and stuffed in the shelves sitting next to the 15 different extension cords of various sizes that are spilling out onto the floor. But it can get out of hand. At least it sure felt that way to me as I was looking at the mess that is my garage on Wednesday morning. And I got to thinking, I wonder if there is anything on the interwebs, any advice on how to declutter? <laughs> yes, there is. There is like millions of different sites you can go to. But as I typed in in the Google, you know, to see what decluttering, the first thing that came up was this article called The Science of Decluttering, and it was written by a gal named, let's see here, Chandra Martinez, who writes kind of a wellness blog for Blue Cross Blue Shield out of Michigan. And here's what she says. She says, clutter isn't just messy and disorganized. It can be bad for your physical and mental health. No kidding. The science of decluttering shows it can improve focus, reduce anxiety, and help deter procrastination. Well, that sounds pretty good. Kept reading. Existing in a cluttered environment taxes our brains because the cluttering objects compete for our attention according to Dr. Scott B., who is a clinical psychologist. Science has shown us that visual clutter around us can have an impact on us both mentally and physically. 
And here are five examples. Number one, clutter can increase cortisol, the stress hormone in the body. A study in UC by UCLA found a link between high density of household objects and elevated cortisol levels. Messy spaces signal the need for future cleaning and the mental weight of knowing it needs to be addressed increases stress. I'm glad somebody came out with a study. <laughs> you know, I could have told them that. Anyway, clutter can increase negative feelings and lead to depression. In the same UCLA study, researchers found clutter affected mood and self-esteem. An overly cluttered space may lead to feelings of shame, guilt, or inadequacy. Preach, all right? Clutter can decrease our ability to focus and be productive, according to a study by the Mayo Clinic. Number four, clutter can cause sleep loss. Studies by St. Lawrence University and Princeton both showed people with cluttered homes tend to suffer from insomnia or feel tired because they use their mental energy on the stress of clutter. And number five, clutter can negatively impact a person's weight. People with cluttered homes tend to consume more unhealthy food and they tend to have lower physical activity. I don't even want to go there. Okay, it does explain a couple things. The upshot of this, the upshot, to declutter means that you really have to take stock in your life of what's important, right? What's essential, and then start to get rid of what is not. Otherwise, you simply are not able to focus on the core of who you are what you want to do, what you want to be. Huh. You can try, right? But chances are you'll also be constantly fighting distraction, which can lead to all those nasty little side effects that I just mentioned, like procrastination, shame, depression, even illness. It's called, I think, disintegration, where the disparate parts of your life and living are not clearly integrated. They're not tracking right, toward a common goal or purpose. Now, my filthy garage might not be unique. I'm sure we could have ourselves quite the little group therapy session if we wanted to all unburden ourselves of our own housekeeping habits. But for our purposes today, I'm led to thinking more about what we could call spiritual decluttering. right? getting down to the core of what it really means to be a person who wants to follow Jesus. The very first public words that we hear Jesus speak in the Gospel of Luke are like this marvelously decluttered, pared-down-to-the-nub moment of clarity where he puts forth what he sees as his mission. His entire reason for showing up in the first place and what he is going to dedicate himself to. I'm sure the rumors had already been flying all around about him, right? About the things that his cousin John had been saying about him. Maybe word had gotten out by this time of his little vision quest out into the wilderness where he faced down the devil himself, right? Other works of power maybe that he had done already. But now he's back in his hometown, his home synagogue, most likely, we can assume, surrounded by a whole bunch of family and friends, people who had known him 
his whole life. And he's asked to read from the Scriptures. And he picks his own text from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, a text that was understood to be a reference to the one who was to come, the anointed one, the chosen one of God, the Messiah in whom they would find salvation. When I say salvation, I don't mean some pie-in-the-sky salvation out there in the ether, okay? They were all good observant Jews. They already knew that they were living their lives in the palm of God's loving hand. They were looking for a salvation that was much more immediate, right? Much more tangible, saving them from their oppression and troubles on this side of eternity. And so Jesus reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captive, the recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he sits down, as was the custom of a teacher, and sat down to teach. And he delivers what was probably the shortest sermon ever given in that synagogue. He said, those words I just read, yeah, that was about me fulfilled in your hearing. Now, we're not going to get the rest of the story, and namely how they all reacted to that little sermon, until next week. But that's okay. More important today to simply hear this shortest sermon of all time and take it for what it is. And apparently what it is, is the good news that will define Jesus' life in the next few years and be evident in every single human encounter that he has, and in every word that he speaks, that God loves and abides with, stays with, and is working to help the poor, the sick, the oppressed, the imprisoned, anyone who for whatever reason has apparently lost hope. Now, this ain't new, what he said, right? This is not something that Jesus just dreamed up on the spot. Mary sang about it already, didn't she, in Luke's gospel. When she first learned of her pregnancy, he's brought down the powerful from their thrones. He has lifted up those of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. It was the same song that her forsister, Hannah, had sung centuries before. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. It's the same message that the prophets shouted, that the psalmist had composed, and that the Torah itself had embodied. The one who created the world and loves it, all of it, will not stand to lose any of it. That's the good news. But it's easy to get distracted. Huh? Isn't it? To clutter up our spiritual life together with all sorts of ancillary missions or projects or purposes or worse, to over-spiritualize Jesus' saving work to the point that we become so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. Maybe you've heard that before. 
Are we working? Are we working to bring freedom and release to those who are locked behind bars or in cages or imprisoned in some other way? Are we working to bring health and healing to those who are suffering from illness and disease? Are we working to bring real hope, real hope and love to those who don't have any? Are we letting others know that God is so focused on these priorities as to enter our existence and actually live among us, to show solidarity with us and love for us through Jesus? In short, are we loving others out of gratitude to God for the way God has loved us? Inasmuch as we do those things, then we're proclaiming the same gospel that Jesus proclaimed that day in the synagogue in Nazareth. Not just preaching Jesus, but preaching the things that Jesus preached. There's a difference. And if we aren't doing that, if we define the gospel as being something that is, I don't know, strictly spiritual, only concerned with a Jesus who can kind of stamp our passport into heaven, having little, if anything, to do with actually working against suffering and poverty and injustice and imprisonment and illness and hopelessness, then we are not preaching the same gospel that Jesus preached. To me, that is as decluttered an understanding of the gospel as is possible. That is as simple and focused an understanding of Christian theology that I can imagine. Everything else, no matter how good it is, is ancillary to it. I still don't know when I'm ever going to get to cleaning my garage. But that's okay. We've got bigger fish to fry. Thanks be to God. Amen.